0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking with Glenda Goodman, author of Cultivated by Hand, Amateur Musicians in the Early American Republic. Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven were all working in Europe during the last quarter of the 18th century, so perhaps it's no surprise that musicologists have diligently studied these men and their music. Yet, in America... The music-making of the generation born around the time of the Revolution has been all but ignored. Goodman begins to remedy this oversight with Cultivated by Hand. She analyzes the gendered and classed dynamics of the white New England gentry and the enslaved labor that supported their wealth through a penetrating examination of music manuscript books. These documents are hand-copied music books, often but not exclusively written by women, that are intertwined with the development of the culture of a new nation. Welcome, Glenda. I'm so glad that I had this opportunity to talk with you about your book.
1: Thank you, Kristen. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So how did you get interested in this topic? These music manuscript books I don't think are well-known by musicologists, certainly.
1: Well, This was a process that was a little bit accidental. Um, I didn't expect to work on them when I went into a special collections library, a rare book special collections library in uh, 2010 to do dissertation research. Um, But a curator suggested that I take a look at these unusual manuscript books um, at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts. And once I saw them, I realized I was looking at something that wasn't just interesting in terms of what it told me about musical preferences and music culture in late 18th century United States, but also something that was very interesting as a cultural artifact in and of itself, as a piece of as pieces of handwork, um, as as um, like sort of talismans of individuals' experiences and identities. They were just um, completely fascinating. So. Um I was hooked. You know, people talk about having archival discoveries and these magical moments, and that's basically what happened to me. Then I went back and asked tried to ask the same question you asked of why aren't people talking about these? Why why haven't musicologists written about them? And the answer is kind of wonky. Um, and it has partly to do with the introduction you gave um just now that, you know, this is an era that is studied predominantly through the lens of canonic um, European male composers, but not exclusively. Um, And the other, so the other piece of that is actually that they had been studied, they had been sort of enumerated and counted and looked at, but not for a few decades. So it has to do with sort of the history of studying the history of American music, um, where Scholars went through and tried to figure out what sources existed, and then once they did that, they waited for another generation to come along and
0: do something more with them, which is how I enter the picture. Can you tell me me, a little bit more about these books? Sort of what do they look like? What kind of music is in them? You know, where were they getting the music to copy into them? You know, sort of just give us a sense of what these books were like as a material object. They come in all shapes and
1: sizes. And that's one of the things that made them so fun to look at and to work with, because because I never knew what exactly I was going to find. Um, Some of them look like almost like something that you could buy, um, now, uh, like a, a score that's, you know, nicely um, nicely printed or nicely bound. Some of them have manuscript music copied in alongside those bound scores. Other the Others of them look like a child's, um, like, after-school project, clumsily stitched together scraps of paper with doodles and lots of mistakes. Um, some of them were clearly, like, fancy... Uh, Fancy books bought at an at a expensive stationery store and then sort of treated with as um, prestige objects and others of them were more workaday. day. So they really run the gamut and they, oh, that goes uh, the same goes for the shapes and sizes they come in. I've held some that require like two strong arms to hold them up and others that I can just sort of hold in my little hand. So they're, they're extremely diverse. Um, and that that diversity points to the range of people who were using them and the ways in which they were being used, but they they tend to be not especially um, remarkable looking. Uh, they're not like magnificent, you know, striking volumes that seize your attention. you know, they're usually kind of dull looking as as physical objects, but sometimes they do have these like doodles and other really interesting things in them. so, They really are, um, they have a a wide variety, but inside what I found was that um, often what I would find is repertoire that was either sacred music, um, which goes along with um, the way that music in general was validated in the 18th, 17th and 18th century um, among white settler colonists in the United States. Um, but then also, and that's mostly Protestant sacred music, so tune uh, hymns and and um, songs. but then also, what I really struck me was how many um, popular songs from the, from Britain were being copied into these books. It really gives the impression that these are um, people who in the early United States were very much interested in keeping up with the tastes and cosmopolitan um Affects of the metropole, even though the metropole was now officially, uh, the metropole being London, and even though it wasn't now officially part of the um, political system they were in. So it's, there's a lot of sort of status signaling and trendiness signaling in these volumes that I found very interesting. With, with in, based on how people chose to copy um, popular songs.
0: I noticed that you said in the book that you'd looked at about 100 of these out of, I I think, about 250 that have been identified in various libraries, but all the ones that you focus on in this book are um, from families that are from New England and are pretty prominent families as well, wealthy and um, uh, families that... um, held great, sort of uh, an important cultural place and social place at the time. Is that just, uh, you know, how did you choose those, I guess? And are these books mostly a New England phenomenon?
1: They are not mostly a New England phenomenon. Um, there are an, a number of books um, from the middle colonies, uh, from the mid-Atlantic region, rather, and then also from the south, Um, I decided to focus on New England because I wanted to treat this as a cultural phenomenon um, and um, I didn't want to generalize too much to make this a national phenomenon. Um, And I didn't think that the kinds of influences that would lead, say, a genteel woman in a Virginia plantation to make music, those are not the same as the influences that would lead a woman in Providence, Rhode Island to do that, even though there are some commonalities. So I wanted, I wanted to sort of respect the diversity of the early United States and not generalize too much. So that led me to focus on New England, um, where there are a lot of these, and that's partly due to um, what was basically a two generations long music education campaign by the time you get to the generation I write about. So there was just a lot of music education happening in the 18th century in New England, um, which helps make these people musically literate. Um, But I focused on these families because I wanted to write an intimate book about individuals and what music meant to them. One of the parts um, of this research that really compelled me was when I would be examining these books almost as though they were curiosities. You know, what an interesting thing to look at. But then I would see the name of the person in the book and go dig around a little bit to see what their lives had been like. And that's when I started to really um, become attached to them as people and to wonder more about what their experiences were like. And I did some more archival digging to find out more about them. And the, the challenge with doing archival research on people in the past is that it tends to be the more privileged people in the past to have richer and more detailed historical records attached to them, written historical records attached to them. So it's much easier to find information about a woman who was married to a senator or a woman whose father was a prominent doctor, you know, women who's, who's, uh, who had men in their lives who achieved prominence and therefore were accorded some sort of stature and historical record um, uh, through them. Uh, that's, that's how I ended up writing about these people. And I, I tried to keep that in mind to, as I was writing to think, you know, these are really the most privileged people, um, among the most privileged people in the early United States, people who socialized with presidents and senators. Um, And I think it's only because they're so privileged that I was able to write this. And my hope is that future scholarship can do more subaltern studies of um, vernacular music cultures, but that's really not what this project ended up being about.
0: There's a lot of strands from your answer that I want to follow up on, but maybe we'll just start with the end there, because actually what struck me about the book is that you did not ignore the labor um, and the um, and the fact of enslavement in a way that I think you easily could have in this book, um, because the main characters are white, privileged um, wealthy, uh, people. So one of the ways that you did that, that I thought was so interesting was you spent a long time thinking about exact or telling us exactly how these books were made. Like how did they make the ink? How did they make the paper? Where did the paper stuff come? You know, where did the bindings come from? All of that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the choice that you made to actually, to, to talk about the book and the materiality of the book in that such a, um, Uh, such a specific way. (laughs) Obsessive and granular, you might say. (laughs) Um, No, 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 just very interesting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I loved doing, I loved digging into that aspect. The materiality is what I call it, you know, really getting into the tangible features of these books, Um, because nothing nothing comes about in this world without work right even the digital platforms that we're using to record right now you know all of that requires work and resources and energy somewhere and that work is really evident on the written page because you see these women and men laboriously copying out music and so the labor is right there and you can see it especially when they make mistakes and they have to start over it's very relatable But that work doesn't start with them putting their pens or their quills to the page. There's so much that had to go into getting them the raw, what I call the raw supplies um, to be able to even begin doing that um, copying. And I thought about this, um, especially uh, inspired by scholars who've written about the history of um, sort of labor and consumerism and um, book history and letter writing in, the, in this time period, in the 18th century, there's just so much interesting scholarship out there about um, the way all of these different cultural practices were inter- intertwined. So I followed the leads of those scholars in order to sort of take my time and trace out how, um, how collectors, how amateurs would have gathered up these materials. Um, It ended up being um, very satisfying and also very dismaying to do that research because anyone who's interested in ethical consuming right now uh, in the 21st century knows how hard it is. It's it's basically impossible to consume ethically in a capitalist system. And what I find and what I tried to describe in this book is that the same was definitely the case in the 18th century. That's when a lot of these systems were being put into place and the same applies for consuming and engaging with music.
0: Um, so that you have three, well, I, yeah, three different um, families or maybe even just two families that you, you who had a lot of music books that you talk about a lot in the last three chapters. And I wanted to bring them out a little bit because I, I felt that uh, you were able to, combine what you learned from their correspondence with what you learned through the books in this very interesting way. So we got a sense of, you know, your ideas about what these people might be like. And it was very interesting reading and really humanized this. Otherwise, you know, it's very easy to write a book that just said, this is how many pieces there were and of these different genres. But you you really got a sense of uh, uh, you give the reader a sense of the people. Um, and one of them is Sally Brown, who had an enormous um, collection um, and was part of a wealthy family that was um, had both abolitionists and slave, owner, uh, slave traders in it. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about that family and how you were able to read through their music, um, sort of how she might have responded to the things that happened to her in her life.
1: Hmm. Yeah, Sally Brown is one of the main characters of this book for sure. Um she uh it is her it is the materiality of her music collection, in fact, that I really trace, you know, uh in with respect to the question you just asked previously. The way I approached Sally Brown was to first just try to get a sense of what I was looking at. There were when I went to the Rhode Island Historical Society where her music collection is housed. It's actually her whole family's music collection. So it goes well into the 19th century, um, past the Civil War, past the point she died in 1846. And there's just a lot there. So I sifted through to see what seemed to be hers. And I did that partly by tracing um, what had her name and what had her maiden name, Sally Brown. When she was married, she was Sally Brown Hershoff. And so just the, I want to emphasize that just the bibliographical work of this, of just figuring out what goes where, what belongs to whom, what the rough chronological order should be. Like all of that was a big part of the work of this book and um, that I was able to do because of the work of bibliographers that came before me and with the help of librarians and um, archivists. But once I did that, I realized that this was, you know, in some ways, the story of a musically gifted woman, and that was known. Um, Sally Brown, uh, her family is so prominent that their their family mansion is now a house museum in Providence, Rhode Island, and she's known, you know, she's referred to as the musically inclined daughter of the slave trader and merchant, John Brown, um, whose family helped found found Brown University. so it's not as though she wasn't well known. And I realized that then the thing is to, to ask myself, well, what does it mean to just say she's musically talented? Because a musically talented person doesn't have to spend with, with the kind of resources she has, she had doesn't have to spend so much time copying out music. She can pay someone else to do it or she can buy the music uh, without copying it. So what was going on in her life that led her to want to copy all of this music out? And that's what led me to the correspondence between her and her father, between her and her husband, her future husband, then husband, and between her, um, two of her siblings with whom she was very close. And what I found is that like every family, this was a family that endured really a lot of, um, I don't want to say setbacks, but they they had a lot of losses, um, losses of children, losses of um spouses. Um, the, 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 so there's a lot of sort of mourning that I was able to trace through this book, uh, through her music collection, sort of figuring out like, oh, okay, she dates the, that she copied a piece here and he, it, like then and then, but what was, ha- what was happening between those times? I sort of was able to track through what was happening in their lives and match it up with when she was copying music, including a couple of really d- terrible traumas, such as the loss of her husband um, to suicide, and the loss of her mother, the loss of her uh, brother-in-law with whom she was very close. So all of these losses sort of um, sort of accrete over the course of her music collection. But at the same time, I saw her sort of having more things come into her life. She was able to bear five children, none of whom died in childhood, which is remarkable. And in her music collections, you start seeing her making notes to her children, especially her oldest daughter with whom she shared, she began sharing her music manuscript books, which was um, very, it was very touching to see. And then her daughter starts to write music into them as well. And you can, uh, you can sort of trace the ebbs and flows of, of her life that way. One thing that I had to cut myself off from doing was tracing what happened to her daughter um, because her, her daughters, she had, um, I think two daughters uh, both of whom kept diaries and wrote letters and they were clearly just devastated by their father's death and in some ways never recovered from it. And you, I could, I was reading their materials and seeing how that traced out with, what sounds very much like depression um, in their letters and how they're sort of trying to make sense of why the world would do this to them and why does this happen to people? So it was just very consuming, but it was taking me pretty far away from amateur music making. So I had to leave that strand off, but then this is a long answer. But um, the other side of the other side of Sally Brown is that her father was a slave trader and was inveterate. You know, he he saw it as an, an, an important um, money making opportunity and he didn't want to be shut out of it. He was a merchant. He was a capitalist. He wanted to do it. And he did. Even when it was illegal, And he was taken to trial by his and uh, confronted by his brother who converted to Quakerism and led the Rhode Island Abolitionist Society. So there's a lot of family drama going on there, too, that played out very publicly. But even in Sally Brown's own home that she was raised in, the census records from when she was growing up shows that there were enslaved women and men living in the house with her. So all of this is extremely personal to her, um, the sort of, the the way in which the pro and anti-slave trade um, debates were playing out in the early Republic. And of course, she wouldn't have had the resources, she wouldn't have had the money to buy all this music or to have the music instructors and so forth, were it not for the fact that her father was a successful merchant whose success came partly from the slave trade. So one of the things I try to do is weave all of those strands together You know, the losses, but also the privilege um, to show that there's no one straightforward story to be told about what goes into being an amateur musician. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the
0: end... What will I become?
1: Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
0: The other family that you talk about a fair amount, particularly in the last chapter, is the Wadsworth family. And um, in that um, section, you do talk about how you can see sort of intimacy being um, uh, and what's a good word, um, fostered through music and through these music books. And I have to say, I found that particularly resonant because we are in a time, uh, we're recording this during the COVID pandemic and a lot of us can't see our relatives right now. We don't know how long we're going to be, um, uh, parted from them and separated from them, just as the Wadsworth family was often parted from each other and, and really everyone in that period, because travel took such a long time and and um, you didn't know if someone would ever come back from a trip. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, you use the Brown, I think, books to talk about these issues of slavery and these issues of sort of class and how, um, how New England society was conflicted and riven by slavery, but, um, the Wadsworth family used for something different. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: The Wadsworth family is a great example of, um, being very invested in appearing polite and tasteful at all costs and how much work went into training children to behave in a way that would be considered polite and tasteful by the Maury's and standards of the times. This this comes across partly in their um, music collection, which I'll talk about in a minute, but largely it comes across through the letters from the patriarch of the family, Jeremiah Wadsworth, who was uh, um, prominent. He was a prominent man in Connecticut. Uh, He was the Continental Army's Commissary, so and also he um, was a. I might be getting that fact wrong, but he was important for the commissary in the Revolutionary War. So he was a patriot, he was a Federalist, um, and he uh, opened banks. So he's this very, very prominent man who had clear ideas about how he expected his children to behave. And because he was traveling often for his work, uh, what we have are all of these letters from him to his three children trying to get them to behave the way he wants them to. And it's almost funny because he's so frustrated by them, but it's not funny because in their responses, especially that of his oldest child, his daughter, Harriet, you can see how hard she's trying to please him and how difficult it is to achieve these standards that he's expecting. Um, And also just maybe makes us reflect on, you know, who is served by these standards of correct comportment and decorum and behavior? You know, what, what are those really upholding and at what cost? Because he berates his oldest daughter constantly about things like the quality of her handwriting and her spelling. She's a, you know, 13 year old and he's upset with her because she writes him a letter that he wants to be able to show to the people he's around. He wants to be able to say like, look how cultivated and, um, well, well-trained, well-educated, accomplished my daughter is, but her spelling is so embarrassing that he can't show it to anybody. And he writes her a letter berating her about that. And she just, her responses are always like, oh, I'll keep, I'll keep trying. And he's telling her things like, please spend X number of hours a day working on this. It's, it's really, um, he's very stern and he's much kinder to his son, Daniel, Harriet's younger brother. He's the middle child. And kinder still to the youngest child, Catherine, who sort of seems to get a free pass and uh, enjoys a lot more favor. Um, But really all of this, all of this sort of berating and disciplining is about trying to make sure that they don't embarrass themselves or embarrass him, uh, embarrass him as the patriarch of this prominent family. And that got me really interested at the nature of embarrassment because it is a feature of music making that I think should be discussed much more. Anyone, I'm a musician, anyone who's a musician knows that playing music opens you up to the chance for great humiliation. It's fun, it's wonderful to make music, but if you set out, if you try to do something um, as a performer, you might end up sort of falling on your face playing out of tune, making something squawky, singing out of tune, your voice cracks, whatever it might be, it's embarrassing. And because it's happening sort of with and in your body, it has this physical cringe quality that I think um, is really palpable. um, also, It's also palpable in the letters that I see in the Wadsworth family, because a lot of what Jeremiah Wadsworth is telling his children is be careful with how you regulate your body. Sure, it's about handwriting, but handwriting's about the body. What is she doing with her body? And that became clear when he would say things. He would pivot directly from saying, "You know, please spend more time practicing your handwriting." Also, this makes me worry that you are not being very attentive to your um, the neatness of your dress and of your general cleanliness. So he would make this direct connection between the physical inscription she was making and then her physical appearance and whether or not that was correct and polite and tasteful. So all of this seemed to me to be completely intertwined, the music making and the physical, the possibility for physical humiliation in front of others. Um, Ultimately, this, what I do in the book is tie this into broader questions that genteel early Americans were having about how provincial they were seen as being in the world, Um, the United States was quite provincial in the late 18th century compared to the people they were, they were looking at, the people in, in Europe and in Britain. Um, and there was a, a great deal of anxiety about not being taken seriously and being seen as sort of bumpkins. Um, so there's a lot of um, conspicuous signaling of tastefulness that happens as a result. And I, see, I saw that in the Wadsworth's music collection in particular, this was a collection that was made uh, collaboratively by Daniel Wadsworth, Harriet Wadsworth, and their cousin Decius Wadsworth. And, but mostly it seems to be Daniel and Harriet's. And uh, in this collection, there's a bunch of things I would expect to find, like dance tunes, a couple uh, popular songs and hymns. But then there's a whole lot of music by George Frederick Handel, which is very unusual to see in these early American manuscripts. Handel was, of course, extremely popular in Britain, where he was a naturalized citizen in the 18th century. And he was well known in the United States because he was famous in Britain and there would be concerts of Handel's music. But it did not circulate in manuscript, in at least in the many books that I looked at. So this makes me think that the Wadsworths went out of their way to get all of these arias, these Handel arias that were... Um, uh, they were arranged for easy performance by amateurs uh, and they copied them into their manuscript music book in order, I believe, to appear more tasteful and genteel. So it all sort of fits together. um, The way the musical taste reinforces the physical displays of taste, which were very much key to fears about um,
0: appearing un un or um, humiliating themselves. I want to ask about one more thing related to the personalities of the folks that you looked at um, or or stories about them. And uh, it relates to, um, you were talking about Wadsworth being so hard on his children. And, and the story is Nellie Custis, who is the granddaughter of Mary and George Washington. And she practices for four or five hours a day. And But according to uh, one correspondent, she would cry, and she was so sad about it, and it was so difficult. And her grandmother was sort of standing over her, you know, insisting that she had to practice this much. And it really made me think about, you know, this. This wasn't necessarily something these women were doing for joy or even for um, an expression of gentility. It seemed like such a duty to her. And I wonder if you could talk about just. You know, what might music have been meant to these women and men that you um, you are studying through their music?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, I think that
0: the story of the recalcitrant child who really
1: doesn't want to practice is evergreen. And it is an evocative example um, about Nellie Custis. I think the number of hours she practiced was probably um uncommon. Uh, I think most women didn't practice that many hours, but that's sort of beside the point. One of the cases I make in this book is that this kind of amateur music making was fundamentally a disciplining practice. Yes, it's about displaying good taste. Yes, there are these touching examples like with Sally Brown and her children where it's really about affective connection and the same goes for her and her husband. That all is very real and very important. But the way it was introduced into their lives often was as a disciplining, a socially and physically disciplining practice. And what I mean by that is that the ways that students that chil- that children would become music students was often by being sent to what were called singing schools, which were um, temporary schools where uh, like night schools that would run a couple times a week for maybe three months by, a a local music teacher where they would learn how to read music and learn how to sing hymns together. And that was very much about maintaining um, discipline and order. If you can imagine like a a room full of 50 students of all ages, um, a lot of that, what would happen in those classes a lot uh, often would be just making sure they weren't talking and singing when they weren't supposed to be. So there's a lot of um, physical and social distancing that happened there. Sorry, dis not physical distancing. Uh, That's a real COVID um, slip. Uh, Not physical distancing, but physical disciplining. So some of that physical disciplining and social disciplining happened in these singing schools. But for women, especially young women, it happened when they went to the seminaries and academies that became more prominent in the late 18th century. These were schools, sort of secondary schools that women could go to, young women uh, who could go there and receive a very good education, oftentimes in topics like geography, history, uh, sometimes things like Latin, Greek, but um, also what were called the polite accomplishments like embroidery, music, dancing, drawing, French. Um, All of these were skills that were expected of genteel, nice women, and they would learn them at these schools But in order to do all of that learning, what I found by looking at their diaries and their accounts of what just school was like, is that they had these incredibly structured days, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. to go use the piano to practice and then going to class for a couple of hours and then going to uh, another um, class for a couple of hours and then having a couple of hours to basically do homework and study and then to practice again or to take a music lesson and uh, all of this was being documented in their diaries and also by um, their teachers and by the host families that would um, take them in if they were uh, not local students. So I what I found was that this practice, the learning how to be a musician, was very much about inculcating these um, principles of hard work and labor uh, that may or may not have been also conjoined with pleasure for some of these students. I think, I think for some of them it certainly was, and for others it was not. Um, but the fact that some of them then... I, I tried to focus on some that then seemed to continue doing it because they wanted to. So women in particular who continued copying out music or collecting music, once they were out of school, and especially once they were married and maybe started having children that's, you know, there's really no social reason why they were expected to continue after that point. It was debated, and I'd be happy to talk about that, but for the most part, they weren't expected to, but some of them did. And so that made me think this must be not just a punitive disciplinary experience for them.
0: You started to touch on this, but I like to make it explicit with this question. There was professional music making happening in the United States right after the revolution. Um, Sometimes you call them occupational musicians, which I thought was a very interesting way to say that and very cool. But um, what can you learn from amateur music making that is different than you could learn if you had chosen to study professionals?
1: Hmm. Well, I get the term occupational musician from Candace Bailey and her wonderful work on amateur musicians and professional musicians and women in the Antebellum South. Um I thought about that a lot because ultimately I'm not trying to define what makes an amateur musician. Um but I am interested and I think the cases that I show in the book are interesting because they show music that is being made not for explicit economic reasons. So an occupational musician is someone who is in some way or other earning money by doing this. And somehow that becomes, in the way it is sort of discussed among scholars is that this becomes a social class identity, perhaps, uh, maybe something sort of connected to um, almost a guild, um, later unions. Um, but that's really not, what's going on with these individuals, the pressures and the sort of structures that encourage them to follow these paths of becoming amateur musicians are not the clear cut um, economic ones. They do though intersect with um, economics in that they have to do with displays of social class or cultural capital or social capital. um, And that question of how amateur musicians activities reflect their social capital, I think is very much what I'm talking about with the Wadsworths. But what we see from looking at amateurs, looking at 18th century music through the lens of amateurs rather than occupational or professional musicians, um, is really that the use that this practice was put to had to do partly with the enjoyment of music and making music but also about the fulfillment of all kinds of other social and political and cultural obligations. So you would, a woman might become an amateur musician because it was expected of her in terms of her polite accomplishments, making her family look good and um, maybe attracting good men as, as uh, in courting um, for marriage. Like there's so many things going on that would lead someone to do this that don't have to do with, the quality of the music or the style or anything like that. I think music historians often are led to ask questions about what is happening stylistically or performance-wise, which are really interesting questions, of course, but that is sort of beside the point often with this, with, with, with the main motivations that led amateur musicians to make music. The style just sort of helped them achieve their social goals so I think to me that felt like a more a a very important aspect to pull out that this is the use of music to achieve other goals um, that have nothing to do with music and yeah I think that's about it it's a hard question
0: (laughs) well I I think um those goals about music that's very important but I also think you get a sense at least I did in reading your book that the amateur music making through that you can get a sense of what it was like to live then in a way that you really can't through a study of professional music because that's telling you about people's professional lives and um and this is really telling you about their everyday lives, especially these music. When when you can see the labor that it takes to create the book that they're using, mm-hmm. um, so uh, so that's it is quite different. I think what what you you would have written a very different book. I think had you even if you had talked about um, all uh, about binders volumes, which are volumes mm-hmm. of of sheet music that are bound together. I mean, even that I think would have made a different book, even though that still is uh, mostly uh, something that amateurs and women in particular would create in the 19th century. Um, that the labor of having to write it themselves, I think makes a big difference in, in your book and in the way that you uh, have interpreted it, interpreted this topic. Yeah. Um, which actually brings up, why did they do that? Copy the music. I, I mean, some of these women were quite wealthy. Uh, presumably, they could um, afford to buy music. So, why, you know, what, where was the music coming from that they could copy, and why copy it out rather than just buying sheet music?
1: Well. They definitely could buy music. Music was being printed and sold in the United States. Um, It was expensive. Uh, I go into this in the book a little bit, Um, but the cost of music was really prohibitive. The the cost of printed music was prohibitive for most people. So it was more of a luxury good. Um, But even those who could afford to buy it, like Sally Brown or the Wadsworths, um, or Catherine Ackerley, who I also write about, They chose to also copy music by hand because hand copying was itself a very significant and culturally validated practice in the 18th century. In fact, copying music by hand was just one of the many ways that um, manuscript practices were really prevalent. Similarly, what I saw and what scholars have written about are, um, is how common, what are called commonplace books circulated or were made and circulated in the 18th century in, in America, um, in the British colonies. Um, and those commonplace books are, um, bound volumes, hand copied volumes in which sort of all, a bunch of different useful aphorisms or, Notes or quotes could all be collected together in one common place and referred to oftentimes there would be an index um, so that they could look up like, oh, I want to have a good aphorism about I don't know worker bees as a metaphor for productivity and they would flip to their index and look up bees and find something um, or music as a something that will soothe the savage breast as William Congreve said that they could flip to the back of their commonplace book and look up music. And these were sort of reference books that were copied out by hand in um, bit by bit, which is not that different than what music books were. They were collections of music in one commonplace that were copied out bit by bit, sometimes not usually with an index, but sometimes with something like a table of contents where they could look up where to find a particular song. So there's this there's a these music books were really part of a different epistolary culture writing culture chirographic is the word I use sometimes in the book which means handwriting it's a different culture of copying by hand that was really prevalent in the eighteenth century and has everything to do with um, the importance of. Um, beautiful handwriting and the ability to sort of reflect one's education and erudition through being able to write and collect materials in a really smart way. But it also does have to do with the history of printing in, in America, because unlike elsewhere, in, well, unlike um, Europe, at least, many places in Europe, there just wasn't as much access to, even though printed music existed, there just wasn't as much access to it, and it was too expensive. So it was. Um, it's one of the interesting fault lines in this project, I thought, was how these um, there's ways in which the distance of the United States from sources of like excellent paper, for example, did make it prohibitive um, to collect a lot of music or to print a lot of music. But then they found these workarounds by importing paper. This answer is kind of getting off track. I apologize for that. Um, yeah, I'll just end it there.
0: Um, how how do you think it made a difference that you are talking about the generation that lived right after the revolution? So most of the people that you focus on were born during, right before, during, or immediately after the revolution. And that is, I would think, an important uh, generation in the life of any new nation. So what do you think is special or unique or, or ways that you would want to tease out something that's a little different about this generation than maybe the generation before or the generation after?
1: I think there was a lot of uncertainty about what kind of nation and what kind of people in the nation were going to come about after the revolution. Certainly there was a lot of disagreement um, about what the nation was going to be like. Um, We know that from political historians and cultural historians and some of the terrible compromises that were made that we still live with, like the fact that they did not decide to make it a nation without slavery and that they did decide to make it a nation based on dispossessing Native Americans of their land. So all of that, all of that, those um, larger forces were sort of up in the air and being negotiated. And I thought, and I, I, what I found was that these children who grew up in this environment, even privileged children growing up in a rarefied environment, and all of these were children of patriots, so people who fought on the American revolutionary side, not on the British side, um, they, there was still just a lot of uncertainty about whether this was going to work. Some of the, the harshness I sensed in Jeremiah Wadsworth, for example, I think was actually just a real desire, came from a real fear and a real desire to make sure that the nation that he helped bring about, he helped fund, um, would not dissolve into um, mannerless, uh, not I don't want to say chaos, but just people without manners or a sense of what is good and right. And so what they did was they looked to um, British examples for what should be good and right. And that's the kind of music that they copied. And that brought me to something that I thought I used to think it was a paradox to think, like, oh, how funny is it that the first generation of Americans born after the revolution turned so forcefully to copy British examples, British cultural examples? But then, of course, why wouldn't they do that? You know, this is, there are so many good examples of post colonial scholarship that shows how indelible um, hegemony, cultural hegemony is. And that by that, I mean, you know, the, imposition of a set sort of acceptance of an imposition of a set of cultural norms and expectations, even when they are not necessarily in the best interests of everyone who's adopting them. Um, so we see, I, I just recognized that happening here, um, or in the case of the people who I'm, who I wrote about most prominently, those norms did help them because they were at the top of the social ladder. Um, so those colonial norms did help them, but they did result in, um, subjugating those, uh, less powerful with less power than them. But all of those questions of, you know, what is going to happen? What kind of culture, cultural life will this new nation have? Will it be too British? Will it not be British enough? You know, will it come across as being provincial? Will it, will it just descend into uneducated masses taking over politics? That was a big concern. You know, will it be women getting up in arms and wanting to vote all the time? like they. I mean like they were able to do in New Jersey for a while after the revolution. Will it involve women expecting to be able to serve in politics? Will it be, you know, women who were raised in good families then deciding to go perform on stage that was a fear. All of these questions were sort of wrapped up in that first generation's experience. And there's been a lot of scholarship on this on this time period, a lot of scholarship about the historical developments of US politics. And also, you know, work like Joyce Appleby's classic work on inheriting the revolution on the first generation after the revolution. But I wanted to bring something a little bit more granular that focused on the specific tensions that um, music brought out around what was considered to be culturally um, important versus culturally dangerous in the post-revolutionary period.
0: Well, I could talk about this book all day, and you've answered so many questions. I feel like we should sort of wrap it up um, at this point with with um, that last comment. But, um, you know, this was a big project. Obviously, I think this came out of at least part of your dissertation. What are you, what have you decided to turn to now that, that this book is out in the world?
1: Well, one of the big pieces of this book was the study of books themselves that was a big part of what went into learning how to do the research to write this book is to study bibliography and book history and one of my projects that i'm working on now is another book history project and i'm really excited about it it's a big collaboration with the cultural historian Rayland barnes um, it's a project called american contact intercultural encounter in the history of the book and that's a project that will be a multi-author volume and also a digital humanities project that looks at the way different kinds of material texts and books um, can be uh, shown to have mediated encounters between colonial and indigenous and African-descended and um, uh, immigrant populations in the Americas. So it's this Big project, very different than a single author monograph. I'm sort of trying to, we're stewarding it along. And, you know, humanities scholars often do a lot of single author monographs, but I really wanted to make collaboration a a centerpiece of my scholarship. And it's been very rewarding to do that. Um, So that's one thing I've been doing, but I'm also working on a second book. Um, That second book continues to look at the 18th century uh, and uh, in some ways, it picks up some of the threads of the first book, because I am looking at what happens when white, especially English settler colonists move into indigenous lands and bring with them their Protestant hymnody traditions. And how do Native American communities respond to that, especially the pressure to convert to Protestant denominations and um, and seed and give up their their, um, ancestral homelands, which is basically the story of the 18th century in New England and um, into New York and up into Canada is really the story of native Native nations being pushed out of their lands. Um, Not entirely, but um, largely. Um, And so I'm looking at sort of the intersection of how Christian hymnody was more or less a handmaiden to those settler colonial processes uh, so I'm looking at Protestant hymnody for sure, and indigenized hymnody, um, but also uh, the way descendant communities continue to engage with these hymnody practices and sort of what these histories mean to them. So it's a it's a big new project. It it keeps me in the same region that I already am familiar with, and it even the Wadsworths family it turns out play a part in this. So I guess I'll be seeing more of them. Um, but it's it's an exciting project to be doing right now.
0: Well, they both sound like great projects, and I am sure we are everyone listening to this and myself are very excited to to see those projects come to fruition. Maybe we can talk about them as they come along on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining me tonight or today and Um, This is New Books and Music, a channel of New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and I've been talking with Glenda Goodman, author of Cultivated by Hand, Amateur Musicians in the Early American Republic, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Thank you so much, Glenda.
1: Thank you.